passage together. Um, I'll lead us this morning, uh, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, and uh, see what the Lord has for us today. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the, the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son, sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you, uh, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciples whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon, Peter, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Lord, help us today to have our eyes open, our hearts tender, and ears ready, Lord, to listen to what it is that you have to say to us today. And Lord, would you simply allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful, to reflect your truth to your people in, Lord, the way that would honor you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. I would invite you to go a few, just a few verses back in John's Gospel to what we have determined to be the key verse in John's Gospel that really is the lens through which we understand the book, and that is verses 30 and 31. By now, you probably have it memorized, or you at least have it marked up really uh, with, with lots of pen and ink, but it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's end game is life. But what does that life mean? What does that life look like? Is it the mere existence on this planet along with trees and dogs and fish and tadpoles, and bacteria? Is that the kind of life that he is saying that we have? Or is it simply you and I playing out our 
roles in human life, wherever that context may be, in growing up, in getting a job, and finding a spouse, and dwelling in a home, and raising a family, and participating in society, and retiring, and, and dying? Or is there something more that John is getting at here, more than this mundane existence that we've just talked about? You may have heard people say, or you may have said this yourself to someone, you need to live a little, or more colloquially, get a life, right? Either one or the other. What are we saying when we say to someone, you need to live a little? We're saying, break out of the boring, mundane routine of life and grow in your experiences. You know, hike a mountain, ride a motorcycle, jump from a plane, Go on a long vacation. Okay. But there is still an emptiness in people who pursue these and other experiences. It is an emptiness that longs for significance, for fellowship, for satisfaction. It is a longing for everlasting life that reaches into eternity. It is a longing for abundant life that is full of meaning and purpose now. And that kind of life is what John is driving at. Not just the existence, not just the going through of of the norms that everyone else goes through, but there's something more that we have because we have entered into this new relationship with Jesus Christ that comes by virtue of our belief that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And it is described in John's gospel as everlasting. It is described in John's gospel as abundant. So that is the kind of life that he is driving out. And so when a person believes, he gets then life. And it is this life of ministry that John now presses home in this final chapter. This final chapter is really the, the so what. It's the so what of John's gospel. I mean, he's taken 20 chapters here to kind of lay out, this is Jesus. This is who he is. This is who he claims to be. And the disciples are, are struggling all along to get to the place where they are finally acknowledging that he really is the Christ, the Son of God. And so this is the so what after they have affirmed it, and they've seen the evidence, they've believed in it. That's chapter 20, if you remember, that the whole emphasis there of saw, they saw, they saw, they saw, they saw. The witness, the evidence is there one more time, and they believe. And in this now first encounter in John 21, we find three lessons for effective ministry. And last week, we looked at the strategy of our ministry, and we talked about the strategy of our ministry needs to be the strategy of his ministry, or better said, His ministry then, his strategy, needs to be our strategy. And there are too many times that we are trying to create our own strategies that are really not his strategies. They're methodologies that might work, in quotes, but they're not necessarily his strategies. And we also talked about success in ministry. Success in ministry, ultimately, we said, was based on faithfulness. Are we faithful to what he has instructed us to do. And there was a sense in which um, what we found out last week was a lot more corporate. It's talking more about the church. This is the whole section where he says, hey, you know, cast the fish 
or you know, cast the net on the, the right side of the boat and pull it in because they've been out there fishing all night and haven't found anything. But when Jesus speaks and when you're obedient to what Jesus says, whether you understand it or not, you do it. And success is bound up in our faithfulness to be obedient to what he says. But as we move to today, this last section, which we didn't get to last week, we're looking now at the satisfaction in our ministry. The satisfaction that comes in our ministry. And this is much more personal. This isn't just corporate. This is personal for us. This is a satisfaction that comes to us in or while we are doing ministry. And I want to say that the, 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 all, these, all this passage really kind of lends to our understanding of what this looks like. But ultimately, we get to chapter, chapter 21 and verse 12, and Jesus says these words, Come and have breakfast. You say, well, okay, he's just saying come and eat. Now, you have to understand that not that we want to be mystical, but we have to understand that there is symbolism in what Jesus is doing here. And we found that as we've gone through John's gospel, there are times when it's not just the fact that he is saying something that is you know, earthly, but that earthly thing that he's doing has symbolic implications. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, come and have breakfast. But there's a context. There are things that are going on here that are profound. And so this morning, we want to be comforted, we want to be encouraged, we want to be taught by uh, God through John's gospel, and uh, we want to understand what it means to be satisfied in our ministry, in our mission. So the first thing that we want to look at here is significance. Significance. We're satisfied because, get this, our significance, or I say our insignificance, is significant to Jesus. Our insignificance is significant to Jesus. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 21. Think of how different the disciples really were. Look at the list that we have here. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Now, if we consider that Andrew and Philip were likely the two others who were not mentioned here, sons of Zebedee were James and John. We have these seven, I called them last week, the, the Galilean seven, probably from that region. Um, this is likely who we have here. And if you add to that list the rest of the disciples, less Judas Iscariot, Matthew, Bartholomew, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, we have a list of diverse men who have been called by Jesus, called by God for ministry, called by God to be the church. But not all of them would seem to us to have any intrinsic qualification to serve as disciples. It's not as if Jesus walked around you know, Galilee and said, you know, I think... I think he'll be a good disciple based on his gifts and his talents. You know, I don't know that necessarily there was a, an organization working for Jesus that was you know, vetting all these candidates for discipleship, going through an HR process and saying, okay, this one's good and this one's good and this one's good. That's how we would do it, but that's not how Jesus did it. So the, the 12 were like the rest of us. They're just 
like us. There's a sense in which they represent who we are as God's body. Now, maybe not clear, and I, you know, here's, you know, here's Peter and here's you, but there's a sense in which we understand that we are like them. We are selected from the unworthy and unqualified to be a part of God's team, so to speak, to be a part of his church. They were like Elijah, men with a nature like ours. And I just want to pause here and just remind you that as you read God's Word, you might say, oh, you know, this is my favorite character because I just love what he did. Usually they're positive things. Someone might say, well, I love David. Why? Because he's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, that's right. Now let's just examine what David actually did, shall we? We have a sense that we think oftentimes of people in a, in a, in a, in a higher plane, but they were people just like you and I. And God uses everyday, normal, mundane people, and that's what's going on here with his disciples. Now think about this, and let's think through each disciple here. As you read through the Gospels, you find that they were loud-talking public failures like Peter. Wasn't he loud? Wasn't he always talking? You know? And he was a failure too, right? And yet, Jesus wanted him. They were known doubters and pessimists like Thomas. They were logistical administrators like Philip. Don't mistake Philip, the evangelist, with the Philip that's the disciple here. They were loyal and faithful souls like Nathaniel. Oh, we want a bunch of Nathaniels, right? Man we're, you know, has no guile, loves the word, waiting for Jesus to come. I mean, there is a sense in which you, know, you just want a, a church full of those. But that's not what we have here. Um, there are those who are personal, inviting characters like Andrew. He's always inviting people. Men with passionate temperaments like the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. All right? Passionate temperaments. That's John, the writer of this gospel. Men who were despised, self-serving, control freaks like Matthew. He was a tax collector. Give me your money, right? He wouldn't like him. He abandoned his people to serve the Romans. Tender-hearted mama's boys like Thaddeus. Just read up a little bit on Thaddeus. You'll understand what I'm talking about. A fiery and extreme political zealot like Simon. James, known as the less, which was likely a reference either to his physical stature or his age. So if you think, you know, you have a hard time getting along with people or being accepted because of something physical about you, here is the person you need to look at and say, you know what? God chose him with that circumstance in his life. And I think what's interesting about our particular passage here, I mean, you think about it, this is the end of John's gospel. And, and just, just go, if you would please, to verse 2 again. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. I mean, these guys aren't that important that they're even going to be mentioned. No, just two other disciples. Who are the, the no-name disciples here that John lists in his gospel? But isn't that the reality? I mean, these people, they're just run-of-the-mill guys. 
Now, we might say, well, I, you know, if I'm in here, I would want to be Peter, you know, the first in the list. And, you know. No, no, we're all these, you know, and there were some other disciples, right? That's really who we are. This was a motley crew of disciples that Jesus' ministry was going to continue with. And friends, it is through a motley crew of rather sinful and insignificant people gathering together as Gateway Bible Church that God desires to accomplish his will through. We are that motley crew. And we have a variety of personalities in here, don't we? And we're different. And I think that's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome you look at these disciples and you say, how could God make something of that? But he does. Because he takes people that are insignificant and by virtue of the gospel, breathes in significance. But Satan wants to convince us that our sinful shortcomings render us useless to God and his church. However, Christ's choice of the disciples or the apostles testifies to the fact that God can use unworthy and unqualified people to do his will. And friends, we fall into that category. And if we fall into that category, guess what? There is huge hope for us in the sense of God can use me. God can use frail me, angry me, little me, young me, mama's boy me. And the list goes on. And I also want you to notice Acts chapter 17, 6 reminds us that it's these apostles, these disciples who then were the apostles that turned the world upside down. And it wasn't because of their extraordinary talents. It wasn't because of their, un, uh, their, their unusual intellectual prowess. It wasn't because of their powerful political influence or their, their family and social status. It was simply <coughs> because it was God working in them and through them that they were able to accomplish his will and turn the world upside down. And God working through unworthy, insignificant people is great power, friends. God chooses people like us, the humble, the lowly, the meek, the weak, the timid, the struggling, the burdened, the tired, the abused, the broken, the fearful, the tearful, the balanced, the plain, and on and on and on. And he does that all because he never wants any question about the real source of power in their lives. It is not the man that is powerful. It is the truth of God and the power of God in the man or the woman that is the important thing. So the apostles are rightly honored as we open up the pages of God's word but they were merely weak, frail men. People used by God to accomplish his purposes, to present the mystery of the gospel. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and following. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are weak. And through our weakness, God is glorified. And so as we glean over this, this, this group of disciples and their progress through the gospel, we see, though, that they are lacking some things. Notice these things. They lack, first of all, spiritual understanding. Remember, Jesus would say to them, you, you are slow to hear and slow to understand. What do you say that about us? They lacked humility. What was one of the things that they always wanted to be? You always, you know, often you heard the disciples saying what? Well, I want to sit on the right hand and I want to sit on the left hand. There's this kind of like, you know, I want to be the greatest. Jesus challenges that. But there's this, this pride that is so natural for people. They lack faith. Four times Jesus says in the Gospels, oh, you of little faith. They lack commitment. Mark 14, 50 just reminds us that, that, you know, when things are going well, when the multitudes are gathered and people are getting fed or whatever it might be, you know, the disciples are excited, they're, they're, they're doing well, but when the, the soldiers come, they forsook Jesus and they fled. And then they lack power, and that ultimately was what Jesus wanted them to see. And ultimately, he grants them authority and power by breathing out to them the Holy Spirit and giving them the Holy Spirit for ministry. And so we are reminded then of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is not the group that we would have chosen. This is not the group that has all the stuff necessary to be, you know, this, this wonderful, incredible team that's going to start this whole new religion. No, this is God's choice of simple, frail people like you and I that he is going to work through. And friends, it is still the same. Things have not changed. God works through us. And so find yourself in the context of, of this picture of the disciples. The struggles that you face, the sinful temptations that you have, the ways that you may get angry or you're anxious or you're fearful or maybe the the struggle that you have with, with stealing or maybe um, you know, discouragement or whatever it might be. God uses people that struggle with all those things and more to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't use squeaky clean people because there's only one squeaky clean person ever, and his name is Jesus. And so we must recognize that we are all in this together, that God has brought together a group of you know, backbiters and hypocrites under the umbrella of the church to say, work together for my glory and work on your backbiting and work on your hypocrisy because I'm, I want you to, to become holy because that's who you are, but I am going to work through you in spite of your sinfulness. And that should be encouraging to us. Now, we move from the significance to this point of communion. You know, Jesus calls these disciples to come and sit down with him and have breakfast. Just, just think about that. He calls these disciples. He brings them. He welcomes them in. But he, he, he welcomes them now to sit down and to enjoy a meal with him. 
this diverse group of men, upon recognition of that, that Jesus is the one who gave them the instructions about where to cast the net, they come to him. John sees in that moment the reality that this is Jesus. Verse 7, he declares to Peter, it is the Lord. And then Peter, ever impulsive, abandons everyone else and rushes to Jesus. I could just want you know, the other disciples to say, hey, Peter, where are you going? We've got to get this boat in. I'm going to Jesus. I don't care about you. Boom. And he's in the water chasing after Jesus. And then you have the other disciples who wrestled the boat and the full net to the shore. And that's verse 8 there. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And they were not that far off. But, but just want you to notice that the response of the disciples to Jesus and to their understanding that it is Jesus is not uniform. It reflects the variety of responses of those who love and follow Jesus. Some, like John, are more contemplative. They process what they're hearing. They're learning about who Jesus uh, is, and they're, they're, they're just considering it. There, there are people like Peter that are very impulsive, and, and, and they rush to worship in ministry. All right? And then there are these other disciples that are they're diligent in their responsibility. Doesn't God want us to be responsible with the things that we have? So I'm not going to abandon them. And you see the conflict that can happen here. I mean, Peter might be saying, I got, what's up with you guys? There's Jesus. Let's go. And the other disciples saying, well, Peter, that's nice. I want to go worship Jesus too, but we've got to get this boat to land. And then there's John just pondering the whole thing. Right, you, can, you can see the, conf, the potential conflict because people are different. They respond differently. Now just think about this in the context of when, we, you know, we, when we're singing songs together. There are some people that are just fully engaged. You know, they're tuning out everything. It's just them and God, and they're singing this song, and they're just enjoying it in that sense. And there are other people that are like, yeah, I like that word. It's a good word. I like that word. That really reminds me of this huge point of theology and and you're processing the same scenario in a different way. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. We're different. And so some people are more stoic in how they, how they worship. And some people are just you know, exuberant and, and, and emotional and, and passionate. And, 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 and both have their place. And that's why it's good sometimes to have different kinds of of songs that blend through. You have some songs that are just, you know, worshipful songs in the sense that they just, they linger on a theme. And then you have other ones that, that build the solid base of foundation of understanding of theology and you're repeating it. We did that this morning. And can it be? You, did you think about the theology in that song? And then we sing some other songs that are not lighter, but they're lingering on maybe one particular theme. And both of those have their place. In fact, I'm just saying we are, we are created differently by God. So not everything here is, is uniform. It's important that we don't expect then other people, especially people in the body of Christ, to think and to feel and to behave in the same way that you and I do. Why aren't, you know, Peter saying, you know, John, why aren't you rushing in here like me? I don't know. We don't see that in the text, but I'm asking by means of application. Isn't it possible for us to have that kind of attitude? Why aren't you rushing and doing the same thing like me? Because I'm processing things differently, and that's okay. 
You are uniquely created by God. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Both of those realities are true to all believers. So we must value our diversity. Don't think of that in cultural terms. Think of that in terms of the body of Christ. Think of that in terms that he has created us, he's gifted us for service in a variety of ways. In other words, the Marthas and the Marys must appreciate each other. I tried to find an equivalent for the guys, so I came up with this. The rugged Davids and the intellectual Daniels must appreciate each other. We're wired differently, but we're all important to the body of Christ and to Christ. And we must recognize and value those differences. And we must all appreciate that ultimately, John and Peter and the rest of the disciples got out of the boat and came to Jesus. They eventually got there. Now notice what it says here in verses 10 and 11, or actually 9, 10, 11. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now what's striking, as I mentioned earlier, is what Jesus says next. Come and have breakfast. He invites us not only as a motley crew, but he invites us now to have fellowship with him. Just think about that. Notice John's commentary here about what the disciples were thinking at that moment. He says, now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? And what's the answer? They knew it was the Lord. No more questions. No more wondering. No more, you know, discussions among the disciples about, you know, who is this person here? They are fully convinced that Jesus is Lord. There is a certainty that the one inviting them is the very Messiah, the Son of God. Now, friends, just think about this. If you have had this, you know, this three-year relationship with a master who has been a miracle worker, who has been talking incredibly great things, and you finally come to the place where you realize he is the Messiah, and he dies on that cross, and the, the, you know, the, the light opens up when he is resurrected from the tomb, and now, although you have seen him once, now you see him again, you're still in awe of the fact that it is this, this, this word made flesh, the Son of God, who's inviting me now to sit down and have breakfast with him. I mean, just think about the impact of what that is. Before, the disciples were still wrestling with what's going on. Now they fully understand Jesus The Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords has prepared a little breakfast for them and he wants them to come and sit down and eat with them. What an incredible privilege. He invites us to come. He invites them face to face to come. And there there had to have been a, a hesitancy, a seriousness, a contemplation, a full contemplation about what actually is about to take place. I'm going to sit down with the Son of God and eat a meal. And friends, hear this. Jesus invites us to come 
and dying. He invites us to fellowship with him, to come near to him. The veil of the temple was torn as a symbolic demonstration that we no longer had to go through a high priest in this kind of distant relationship to God. By virtue of what Jesus did on the cross, we are now able to be drawn near. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. He invites us now to this fellowship and this communion with him. We who are this motley crew can come to him and join him in fellowship. That is incredible. That is powerful. And he, by virtue of what he's done on the cross, has removed the obstacle of our sin through what he has done on the cross. And it's through that sacrifice that we can now come boldly to the throne of grace. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. We began our whole service with this, but I want you to listen, or you can turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. It says this, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So just a reminder here, the holy place was that place that only one person one time a year could go into, and that was the high priest. But when the veil was torn, it was symbolically now possible for every believer to come now into that, that place, that holy places. But how, it says here, by the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, by virtue of what he has done. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And then the curtain here is a picture then of the flesh of Jesus, so that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, a motley crew, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. My friends, that is incredibly powerful, that Jesus invites us to fellowship, but that invitation only comes by virtue of what he has done on the cross on our behalf. And this fellowship is not just to be found in the halls of what we know as the church. This is a fellowship that takes place in everyday life, in the rudimentary areas of life when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're discouraged, when we're glad, when we're driving, when we're on lunch breaks, when we're standing at line at Trader Joe's, when we're washing dishes, when we're folding laundry, when we're wiping bottoms and we're cutting the grass. Jesus is inviting us into fellowship. And we have freedom to come boldly to him in those times. So Jesus isn't our God only on Sunday, but every day. And every day, in every situation, he invites us to enjoy fellowship that we have with him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, you know it very well. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's eternal rest, but there's the ongoing rest that comes because of this constant fellowship that we have with Jesus that is rooted in what he's done on the cross. You may remember the song came to my mind, Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude, turned the water into wine, says to hungry, thirsting sinners, come and dine. Come and dine. And this breakfast gathering is a foreshadowing of a greater meal yet to take place. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You find it in Revelation 19, verse 19, but Luke chapter 13, 29 kind of fleshes it out. It says this, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Friends, there is, there's something about sitting around a table that is a place of communion. <laughs> now, it may be something that is lost in our American culture. Because, you know, we're watching TV, we're over here, we're doing our own thing. But there's something about a family gathering together or a group of people gathering together and enjoying a meal together as a time of fellowship and a time of interaction. And that's what will take place, this marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a, it's a feast of celebration. It's a feast to honor the Lamb and what he has done for the bride and for the body. And so there's a foreshadowing taking place here of that. And so what's important here is this, that significance that Jesus brings, that only Jesus can bring, leads then to fellowship or communion. And that fellowship or communion now leads us to this third dynamic, and that is satisfaction. He promises us that, that through the significance and the fellowship that there will be satisfaction. When he says, come and, and eat with me, the goal of eating with him is so that they would be satisfied. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this breakfast meal then reminds us of a meal, and we should have reminded them also of a meal that he had had with the disciples a couple of weeks earlier in the upper room. There he had taken bread and the cup. Now he takes bread and fish and he distributes it to them. And certainly there would be a flashback in this moment of the two times that Jesus had fed the multitude. Called the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And ultimately, what was the purpose of that feeding? It wasn't to fill the bellies. It was to demonstrate to the multitude that Jesus is the bread of life. So Jesus is building on something here with his disciples. Here's the bread. Here's the fish. Remember what I said. I am the bread of life. And the bread of life is the one who is the ultimate satisfaction for anyone who is hungry. There's something about all of this that reminds us of God's ongoing promise to his children, and God will supply all my needs. Well, let me read it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The riches are the 
benefits that come by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and our embracing those as our reality. And my God will supply every need of yours. That doesn't mean, hey, you know, I need a car or I need, you know, some temporal thing. But all my longings, all my hungers, all my thirstings, those are satisfied. Those are, are met by God through his son, Jesus Christ, by virtue of what he, what he has done, because there are benefits, riches, we say, of the gospel that are there for us. There are benefits for us. So true satisfaction is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, as it is declared in this passage. He is worthy of our affection and adoration. He is the one who really knows our problems and us. He is the one who has the right answer for us. He is the answer. And we are privileged to be the objects of his constant attention. And he does not abandon his children. He does not leave them on the lake, so to speak, without help. He works his will through frail, unworthy, incompetent, struggling, sinful pilgrims like us. Now, I haven't done anything to make you feel good about yourself today except point you to Jesus. We are insignificant unless we have Jesus. And it is because of Jesus that we are significant. And it's because of Jesus that we're brought into this, this fellowship. And it's because of Jesus that we can have the satisfaction of our longings met by him. And I want to just bring things now to a close, really two things that I think are important. One is more of a, a, a big picture of what we've just looked at over the last couple of, of, uh, of weeks. So first concluding thought is this. We are to be on mission with the good news that he has given us. That would be the good news of the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that people will believe and ultimately have life. We are on mission with that truth, following his strategy. Trusting in his success, but resting in the satisfaction that he gives. The last verse there, John chapter 21, in, in this context, verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there's another of John's important statements for his readers. He, he says it here. This is Jesus again, the third time, revealing himself. This, time's the, this time the disciples see Jesus for who he really is, that he is the Lord, that he is the one who invites them to come and dine with him. But there's still a nuance here that, that this narrative brings out that I think has some significant impact for us. We get to enjoy. We get to enjoy what Jesus prepares for us. There are many benefits that come as a result of the cross. There are many riches that we are given because of Christ Jesus. And John summarizes those as life. That's the life that we have. Other passages in the New Testament tell us that those riches are things like we are adopted into his family, but not just as like the lowest end of the family. We're adopted as that son, that firstborn son with full citizenship. And other things, I mean, we, 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 are, we have the benefit of peace, not only being at peace with God, but having a peace about life and what is going on. It is because of Christ that we are able to comprehend what we're facing and be at peace. 
He grants us hope through what he promises about our future and even the things that are happening in the present. He enables us to have joy, a constant that is rooted in who he is and his purposes that he's working through us to accomplish his will. And the list goes on and on. But I want you to notice now verses 10 and 11 of our text. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now here, here's just the kind of like the, 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 the bottom line where I'm getting with just one aspect of this application that is helpful. The first thing is this. Jesus not only satisfies us with what he alone gives us. So those are the riches that we have because of Christ Jesus. Here's some fish. But get this, he also satisfies us at time with the fruit of what he has accomplished through us. Now I want you to think about that. You're trying to share the gospel with Peter or with James and John or Thaddeus or Nathaniel or Andrew, whoever it may be out there, and you're just thinking to yourself, you know what? This person falls into the category of motley crew. How in the world are they going to come to know the Lord? And you pray, you share the gospel, you try some manipulative tools to force them to make a decision now, right? You're just doing all you can. And then out of the blue, this person who's a rebel, who's who's just been kind of, you know, just fully living in the world, comes to a place where they're like, I need Christ. I see my sin. And I want Christ. Now, friends, the reality is this room is full of people who are like that. I came to know the Lord when I was 16 years old, and I was living a life in the world. A life in the drug culture, a life that was in rebellion to the whole stream of what my parents were wanting to do. And God took the 16-year-old and he breathed life into him, afresh, anew. And the only thing I can do to explain it is that it was God at work in me. And I think of some of you that I know and the lives that you had before Christ and how God just breathe life into you and, and the people around you probably thought what in the world is going on the thing i've been praying for is actually happening right now how in the world can that be true because we have the encouragement that god doesn't look for the perfect people to be part of his body god is looking for the unworthy the unsophisticated the rebels and he changes them and he breathes life into them and it's his doing and sometimes, sometimes he brings us joy by allowing us to see the fruit, not of our labor, but of his work through us. That we say, Lord, I want to be used more. I mean, just imagine, if I could tell you this week, you're going to meet someone you've never met before, and they are just, I mean, they are worldly. Just imagine what that would look like. And you're going to share the gospel with them. And they're going to go someplace to some church next week, and they're going to fall on their knees and say, God, save me from my sin. And you would not know it. But because you shared the gospel with them, God used that. You wouldn't imagine that would happen. You're hoping it does. But that happens a lot. <laughs> I think that people come to faith 
in ways that we don't always see. But every once in a while, God allows us to see the fruit of our labor. And it reminds us that, you know, we can't manipulate this. But it encourages us to be faithful. To be normal, mundane people used by God. To be faithful to him. Leave the results to him. And to be satisfied in him. And every once in a while, we experience the fruit that he gives us, and we experience the fruit that he gives us or gives to us, and he works through us. And friends, that's encouraging. And it's a reminder to us that, you know what? Our job isn't to manipulate. So this is where we go back to this whole thing of strategy. The strategy here is God's ministry has to be our ministry. We're going to do things his way, and we're going to trust him by our faithfulness and our obedience that he is going to work through us and we can enjoy significance, not a prideful significance, but a thankful, settled significance that we are his children, that we are in relationship with him, that we have this fellowship with him, and that through that fellowship we can be satisfied because he brings satisfaction. Now, friends, we have much to be thankful for. And let us celebrate now in another meal, the Lord's table, as we partake of it together. Lord, help us today to contemplate this relationship that you have brought us into. Lord, we are undeserving people. And yet, Lord, we are encouraged by what we see in the pages of your word and in particular in the, the gathering of these disciples, Lord. Because there's so much about them that is just like us. And yet, Lord, these disciples came to a place where they knew for certain that you are who you said you were. That you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And that as the Messiah and the Son of God, you want them to come and fellowship. And Lord, you call us, you, you welcome us, Lord. You have done everything that is necessary to, to be done so that we can come and commune with you and, Lord, be used by you and, and walk with you and grow with you. And Lord, we just today want to celebrate the fact that it's all because of what you accomplished on the cross for us. So, Lord, now as we... As we celebrate in song as well as the celebration of the Lord's table, would you help us now to, to be mindful, to be contrite, to be humble before you, to be thankful, and Lord, to praise you as we celebrate together the Lord's table. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand.